I'm Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue, and joining me is Andy Pitcher Davis, the art editor of Dialogue and a member of the board of directors. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me. It's going to be great. I'm excited. So this is our next episode of Dialogue Heritage, where we're going to look at the years 1976 to 1980. Uh, this was a tough time in the church and in the United States. Lots of interesting transitions. Spencer W. Kimball is the president of the church. Jimmy Carter is the United States president. There's growing power of the religious right, which is working towards a big victory with Ronald Reagan in 1980 and the defeat of the ERA in 1982. Anti-abortion politics are also coming into being here. Race remains a big issue for the church. And of course, the 1978 revelation happens during this time period, which uh, opens the priesthood to all uh, uh, worthy male members and the temple to, uh, to uh, uh, black women as well. And the country is locked in busing controversies over race. There's white flight to the suburbs. These are huge topics that are going on in the country at this time period, and dialogue is really there to capture all of it. In preparation for this, we reviewed all of the issues from this period, and we also commend to you the early 1990s series on the history of dialogue written by Devery Anderson. So uh, the big transition, of course, that happens in 1976 is that Bob Reese, who was the editor from 1970 to 1975 and a half, really, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, stops uh, editing the journal and passes the torch over to Mary Bradford. Mary lived in Washington, D.C., so this is the first time that dialogue is moving out of California. Uh, subscribers were complaining a lot during this during these years. Uh, you get a lot of nasty letters to the editor saying, why aren't you sending out enough issues? One year only has one issue. And then the next year, there were only two issues. And so Mary really had a hard time of trying to convince all of the subscribers to continue to pay money, even though they weren't getting what they were being promised and hoping to get it back on track again. She had been a friend of Jean England at the University of Utah in the 1950s and helped to spark the idea for the journal and uh, had joined the editorial board uh, very early on. Uh, but when she was asked by Bob Reese to take over, she was 45 years old and thought that she was way too old to edit the journal. <laughs> and I had to laugh when I found that out because I'm just shy of 45 and I thought I was way too young to take yeah. on that role. <laughs> So, uh, so who is Mary Bradford? Well, she held a master's degree in English from the University of Utah, where she had taught and also uh, had taught at BYU before getting married and moving out to Washington, D.C. And she had been very involved in dialogue over the previous 10 years of its existence under the two editors of raising money, uh, uh, producing content, getting uh, her D.C. Uh, friends, a sort of collective of educated Mormons in that area, including Lester Bush, to contribute content. And she had even helped Lester Bush draft that uh, 1973 article on Blacks in the Priesthood. So that's where we are when she kind of takes over uh, uh, at this time period. What was your thoughts about these kind of uh, about this transition, Andy? I think the interesting thing to note in this in this transition is two things. First of all, Mary's history prior to this, which was devoted to the personal voices section, which is personal essay development. And we see later out of her several books that are compilations of those essays, but also the fact that she's a poetess, like she, she's a poet. She's coming at this with a, with a certain vision of a poet. I see in this section also something very interesting, and that is that not only is uh, our country and our religion and our faith 
in turmoil and transition, that the journal itself was going through this difficult time, that there were that there were hard times, that there were you know, all of these, as she says, that she's educated on the pains and the plagues of editing. But but when she when she gets the issue, when she gets the journal, there are skyrocketing costs and income is staying discouragingly stable, she says. Even our readership was considerably larger than other Mormon-related journals. Dialogue's lack of institutional funding made it vulnerable to financial crisis. And this crisis wearied me. I told myself that perhaps Dialogue's time had passed. Luckily, Mary's time had not passed and Dialogue's time had not passed because we see so much more come out of her tenure as editor. Yeah, it's it's funny to think back on uh... You know, there were even these early generations were like, oh, maybe it's time for dialogue to be done. They almost thought it was going to die every year for years and years and years. Um, Yeah. And and your your point that that Mary was really on the the literary and the artistic side of things is useful to note because Lester Bush is appointed as her associate editor and he's in charge of the historical and doctrinal uh, articles. And so they sort of divided up the, the work that way. And interestingly, which I didn't know until this, uh, until doing the research for this, Lester Bush was actually in Australia for two years while yeah. he was doing this work. And so the journal was edited from Washington, D.C. and Australia from around the globe again, in a pre-internet age, is pretty amazing. So one of their first uh, projects is getting the 10-year anniversary issue ready, which comes out in the 12th year of the journal because it was so behind schedule. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity where they're kind of reflecting back on what had been going on. And uh, what, what were some of your reactions to that 10-year anniversary issue? One of the things that's so interesting in this 10-year anniversary is the fact, even though that it's it's several years delayed, I think part of that and part of the fight that we're seeing is is the problem of of charting new terrain. It's the it is the it is the path of cutting your own trail, which they did, and this has really seen the influence. The thing that really stuck out to me in this issue is by far the fact that it isn't included in this is a compilation of all these other LDS journals, including the Enzyme. It marks the end uh, of some of the old various Millennial Star uh, magazines. And, and Mary even says, she says that the point of dialogue in its inception, the vision of it was that it was going to be a companion to these other church periodicals. And we see that that just may or may not have worked out. And as dialogue charged forward, it gave, I think, a lot of momentum, or the question needs to be asked, what was the influence of Dialogue's creation and sustainability on things like Exponent 2 and Sunstone, and even the change in the ensign in the church periodicals? I think all of those things are the small details and fingerprint of Dialogue in other areas of our culture. And I would add BYU studies as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it has this leavening effect. Absolutely. And, and and that in itself is taxing. While very little is going into, into dialogue, much is being taken out of it. And I think that reflects in the stress of Mary Bradford and also the grace that she just sort of charges forward anyway. They're so optimistic, even while being so discouraged, you know, uh, they they know that the work that they're doing is important, that it's going to have a long term impact, but they're burdened by the financials. I mean, they are stressing out 
issue to issue to issue. Are we going to be able to have enough money and are we going to be able to raise it? And they're, they're reaching out and relying on donations from friends and out of their own pocket in some cases, you know. Um, and I think a lot of that urgency comes out of a new and growing sense of solitude and like and isolation. That these issues that were booming and and creating tension were were absolutely killing them as intellectuals in a lot of ways. And so, to to overcome that other sort of uh, impending doom, they they really overcame the obstacles of running an independent journal. And I think the point was to connect with others on tough issues. So we're going to go backwards two years because that one doesn't come out until spring 1978 to the one of the most important issues that appears during this time period in the fall of 1976, which is kind of marks the transition between the Bob Reese era and the uh, uh, and the Mary Bradford era. This is uh, known as the sex issue, or at least it gets the nickname as the sex issue. Uh, it's subtitled Sexuality and Mormon Culture, and it has a bunch of, uh, of essays and articles that, that deal with this topic. It had been commissioned, as I mentioned, by Reese, but was guest edited by Harold Christensen and Marvin Ridding, and then Mary Bradford had to actually put it all together. Uh, she unfortunately had to cut a bunch of stuff from it because it was too long and they didn't have the money to pay for the whole issue. So they kept having to cut down uh, the articles. Um, but notes that this was a really important issue. And as I've gone back to this, of course, my research deals with sexuality. So I tend to think that this is a pretty important uh, issue. But I go back to this and I'm really pretty amazed at the kind of work that they were doing in 1976. Uh, what were some of the things that kind of jumped out to you in this issue, Andy? So... The number one thing that jumps out is, of course, we've already had a, an issue on sexuality in the late 60s. Yeah. The difference is the, is, is, is the shining essay. It's the, it is the shining personal, personal essay that is in, in this issue, and it is Solace, which is, and it's an anonymous essay. It's a strong, strong essay about an LDS man who is gay and rest, wrestles with this for just throughout his whole, whole life. And he tells this in the first per person, which is really powerful. I think that that is by far the showing up and the, and the opening of the term of sexuality to also to include open, openly acknowledging an LGBTQ member among us. That's very important. The other thing, and we can go back to that, but the, the other thing that I found very interesting in this issue is that if you look at all of the essays, all of the essays, except for the poetry and one review by Shirley Paxman, it is all written by men. Even though sexuality and gender is something, you know, would encapsulate both, both, both female and male and in, in between, it is written, the voice is that of men all the way throughout. And so I think that that is kind of telling in it. Um, Mary's poetry that she must have made the choice to put in actually is almost erotic. It's very sexual in nature. It's very connection. The, the grammarian blows her mind. All I'd ever heard from you was I, then I switched to we and included me. Now only you, 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 from me, in me, over us, through us, lost in prepositions, propositions, positions of love, engendering particles of praise, determiners of ecstasy, Relational roots, you to me and we to us, active, passive, passive predict, predicate, nominative, ah, ah, connect. I mean, it's the whole idea of an, that, that she's looking for the relationship and her place 
is it you? Is it me? Is it us? So I feel like that, that, that holds strong. I feel like the other female voice that really holds strong is the, the review sex education materials for Latter-day Saints by Shirley Packman. And she points out just how egregious these things that are being written really are. She says such things as patriotism is a form of sexual expression and asserts self-abuse does not quickly lead to, does not quickly lead to insanity or severe permanent physical or mental degradation if it is stopped. So she talks about brings out some of these these comments that are being made in our culture about intimacy and she's saying wait a second none of this is really appropriate. So those those are my things but otherwise I think it is it is a fine fine balance of scholarly work of charts and research and numbers and Harold Christensen is later on criticized for it not being expansive enough and he says of course not this is just the beginning of our study. But that is beautifully paired and matched with the two strong essays of Solis and also by Doug Thayer Gregg. That's another important one. I want to talk about Solis in a little bit more depth and, and kind of get uh, some of your deeper reactions to it. But I want to point out a few of these articles that are just really good. Um, Lester Bush has two articles in it, uh, both of which are excellent. Uh, Klaus Hansen is a name some people might recognize who writes more uh, about LDS sexuality later on. And Armand Moss has an article here. Um, the one that I really like is uh, by Kenneth Cannon, who taught marriage and family classes at BYU. Um, and he writes an article called Needed, an LDS Philosophy of Sex. Interesting. And what he says in this essay is that LDS teachings on sexuality do not promote healthy sexuality. There's lots of no, 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 but not really much uh, uh, in, in, by way of aff affirming the goodness of sexuality. And uh, it's important to kind of remember that during this time period, as you mentioned, sex education in schools is not really happening or it's a big debate in, in our culture at the time period. Um, LDS leaders still formally oppose the use of birth control. And these essays were pushing back against both of those trends saying, look, we need to fix this. We need to correct this. And so I really think that Cannon's piece is a kind of turning point in the history of LDS thought about sexuality. It marks the transition between an older reproductive sexual ethic to mm -hmm. a newer one that more properly includes pleasure and partner bonding as values. Mm -hmm. And uh, he tries to situate LDS teachings in between an anti-sex Christians and the new morality of Protestants that they were developing uh, ethics for non-marital sexuality. And he tries to see Mormonism as both a kind of sex positive tradition, having space within it to be a sex positive tradition in the broader landscape, but still holding on to a kind of uh, conservative morality around restricting that to, to marriage. And that becomes the kind of basis for, I would say, modern Mormon sexuality uh, from that time forward. And, and we see within the next few years that change, the church changes its teachings on birth control and really gradually comes to accept the, the position that Canon articulates as the one that the LDS church should, uh, should offer. So I think that's a really, really important one. You know, along with that, though, too, Taylor, what we have is is the conundrum of where we have these intellectuals like Kenneth Cannon writing something that's progressive and 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 well stated and enlightened. Meanwhile, what and I'm going to jump back to Shirley Paxman talking about all of these different books about relationships and sexuality that are written by laymen. 
-hmm. and they are they are retroactive in their in their action to promote healthy sexuality i believe mm -hmm. and so i think that there is there again is we find one ourselves here what i call a pivot point in mormonism we're finding that there's a friction and a rub when one group of people moves forward and the other one reacts by retrenching backwards yeah the, the, yeah absolutely absolutely um one of my other favorite articles from this particular issue is the second one by Lester Bush, which looks at images of Mormon virility in patent medicine ads. I don't know if you looked at this one. Um, it looks at all of these great advertisements from the late 19th and early 20th century that were sort of trading on the idea that Mormon men were seen as especially virile. And we're trying to sort of profit off of this by selling food and pills that would give this virility to other men as well. So these ads are hilarious. There's actual visual uh, representations re, re, uh, of the ads. Um, the Mormon elders Dimiana wafers yes. is the most powerful invigorant ever produced. And they ran ads for two decades. This was a good business actually for a while. Uh, the other uh, one that I thought was really funny were Mormon bishop pills, which had the opposite effect. They were supposed to suppress the desire to masturbate. So you had to take these pills to uh, to, to curb your, your urges to masturbate. Um, and the, the ad says, do not become discouraged. No matter if you have tried many of the so-called cures, take Mormon bishop pills and the cure is certain. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> to a larger social commentary of how the outside world viewed Mormonism. Of wow. course, referring back to the history of polygamy. And of course, the, the view of the of a general public of of what they would have in America, what they would have thought of of Mormon men's virility when they have 46 wives. Yeah. So, so there again, and we're just kind of this point, I think also becoming hyper aware of how we appear in the media and in advertising to the larger scope of America. We see that in some other issues where we, where we uh, visit Mormonism film. But I think this is a great essay. Yeah. And, and maybe we just need to reprint some of those ads. <laughs> So Solus spelled yeah. it's a uh, it's hard when you hear it so I'm going to spell it S O L U S uh, the Latin for alone um, published anonymously as you mentioned I believe I believe that this is the first published account of a gay Mormon man in the first person telling his own story um, I'm sure other people wrote them but as far as I am aware this is the first one because there where else would they have published before this right uh, we do know that there were some letters to the editor to dialogue early on that we uh, that we discussed in in uh, previous ones in our right. previous conversations but this is the first like essay that really lays it out and it is a brutal read it is incredibly sad at and least to my reading balanced. I mean the thing of it is is that he talks about the entire picture and not just his own experience in it, but but those that he interacts with, his ward, his parents, the, the women that he dates. I'm really very impressed with this essay. Yeah. One of the one of the heartbreaking lines where he says, in a lifetime of church activity, and I believe he's in his mid to late forties at the time of writing it, just based on some of the the dates that he gives in the essay, in a lifetime of church activity. I have yet to hear a single word of compassion or understanding for homosexuals spoken from the pulpit. 
And this was really, you know, this was the era of Kimball, and this is the era of of Benson and others who uh, uh, Packer uh, is starting to, to speak during this time period as well, where really quite harsh words are being spoken. And he mentions that he was suicidal as a result of hearing some of these sermons, especially one he mentioned specifically of Joseph Fielding Smith that left him really reeling. Well, so. and these are these are our these are our Mormon fathers that are speaking from over the pulpit, yeah. and it is always. I was told recently, you know, Andy, you will always hear the voice in your head will always be the voice of your father. So in the head of this man, he is hearing the voice of those that he not just feels uh, in conflict with, but loves, you know, and is devoted to. So that multiplies the amount of anguish I think within him. You know, we're we're recording this the week that there uh, are protests at BYU and at the church office building from the uh, changes in policy there and uh, the students there who, who were feeling especially frustrated by how they were feeling, uh, how, how they were being treated. And uh, it's just interesting to go back and see the continuity between gay mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints from the past 50 years almost at this point, 45 mm-hmm. years. And um, that, that so many of the same concerns are still dealing with. And his longing to be accepted in the church. And, and you know, as they say, the weather doesn't change that much in 50 years. Meaning, what I mean to say is that the, the pain and the anguish is still there. Our ability from within the church to offer shade and offer help and offer comfort to marginalized individuals, and especially our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, is difficult to it, it's just not happening and one of the things that i find really interesting as we go through these issues these issues of sexuality um, lgbtq issues feminism many many of the issues are the same questions we are asking today meaning our religion is not necessarily charted on a linear path towards a progression it fluxes in its power back and forth so the very next year um, in 1977, after this is published, uh, gay BYU student Cloyd Jenkins publishes really a phenomenal uh, piece in the history of LDS uh, uh, thought about homosexuality called Prologue. Um, I forget what the subtitle is off the top of my head, but this is the beginnings of a kind of gay affirming Mormon tradition published out of BYU, sent around to all of the general authorities and leadership at BYU. Uh, And so we see the beginnings of this conversation that are happening within the culture. I don't know if Jenkins read this particular issue of dialogue, which would have been available by by, by that time, but he's in conversation with other young gay Latter-day Saints, of course, uh, this is the time period when BYU is also doing electroshock therapy on on uh, on students, and and Jenkins mentions that 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 was going on, um, and uh, so it's not just but it's not just this soulless essay. In the following issues, there are uh, further uh, uh, letters to the editor saying I'm soulless number two and I'm soulless number three, and exactly. telling their stories as well. So dialogue, the pages of dialogue become one of the earliest venues in the church for gay men to tell their stories. And I think that's really where you ask me what my response to this essay is. Of course, I have a million of them, but what I prefer is exactly what you're leading into. And that is in the letters to the editor, the response that is shocking and supportive 
from some of the some some that are anonymous and some that are not anonymous in the next issue spring 77 says uh solace one by a, a doctor it says the advice given by this by the psychiatrist the only way i could end my male fixation was to experience male sex was obviously inaccurate and inappropriate no psychiatrist worth his salt would narrow down such a complex dynamics to such absurd simplification perhaps solace misunderstood the council i can assure solace that there are men there are much more gospel-oriented solutions to this dilemma. I would urge Solis to contact someone more in tune with the underlying significance of such behavior. Yeah, they they are all in on a cure. Church leaders and, and church psychologists are all in on a cure during this time period. And you see that come up in some of the responses and in the way that that even these men were trying to navigate their own experiences and in search, searching for the cure as well. Yeah. The other thing I find interesting is those that are looking for a cure, those that are pointing fingers at uh, just sort of saying this, you're wrong in what you say and how you feel. Uh, they they feel fine putting a name to their letter to the editors, like they feel not fine uh, embracing their own identity. Whereas the, these very poignant, tender, tender other letter to the editors by by other anonymous individuals don't have that safe haven yet. He talks about the conflicts and the guilt that tore my conscience for two years. On one side was my strong testimony and love of God, the gospel and enjoyment in serving the Lord. But on the other side was a strong and emotional feeling for my own sex. Why am I gay? I don't know. The explanations offered by psychiatrists don't fit in my background. It, I, I could not seek counsel from the church leaders because they knew my family too well. So he talks all about his pain. And 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 under, under this name of Anonymous, they are able to talk about their experience. And I think that that is sort of unifying almost. Uh, it's a really important part of our legacy as a journal. I, I, I'm glad that you read those essays. Let's transition to one of the other big issues that's happening during this time period, which is the church's opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment was a constitutional amendment that was proposed to uh, establish equal rights for men and women according to the Constitution. Some people thought it was redundant. Some people thought that it was going to make a lot of advances and sort of be symbolic. And some people thought it was going to really make uh, 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 dramatic changes to the way that the country was being run. Of course, at the time, uh, there are huge discrepancies in the law over how women are treated, not just, uh, again, culturally, but legally. So uh, uh, you have the church coming out against this, first in 1975 officially, and then ramping up over the course of this uh, of this period. And one of the major uh, figures that you really need to know about is a woman named Sonia Johnson, who was the head of Mormons for ERA. So of course, she was taking a position that was opposed to that of the church. Sonia Johnson lived in Washington, D.C., and many of the other leaders of the uh, Mormons for ERA also lived in Washington, D.C., where Mary Bradford lived. Uh, and Mary Bradford was in the same ward as some of these women, not as Sonia Johnson, but knew these women and knew what they were fighting about. And they were trying to get dialogue in on the fight and, and get to get involved. Mary Bradford was very concerned about getting the journal uh, tangled up in this particular issue. Uh, uh, however you want to judge her on that issue, she felt like the journal should take a little bit more of a distant stance. And so you don't really see in these early years a lot of people dealing with the issue. Where it does seem to come up is in the letters to the editor. 
let us the other and then we're going to there's a whole issue devoted to it in 81 but eventually yes yeah so sonia johnson is excommunicated in 1979 and eventually uh they the uh mary bradford does do an issue in 1981 on this and we'll get to that in our next podcast we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail but in these early years they really are staying quiet but you see it show up as i said in the letters to the editor i wanted to read a couple that stood out to me here um one of them is uh let's see a letter in the summer 1978 issue which was talking about and complaining about the way that the church was intervening in the international women's year events this was happening in New York, in Virginia, in Utah, and there are many first-person accounts of how the church was getting involved in this. The LDS women were being directed to specific panels to undermine them, to oppose the ERA, and many times, at least in the judgments of many of the LDS women who felt that they were educated on this issue, making ignorant and embarrassing comments and representing the church poorly. Uh, and there's an even an account in this particular letter that describes how uh, this went down in New York, that some of the LDS men were at the International Women's Year events and spoke wow. up in the Q&A on behalf of their wives. <laughs> you know, as one does. We are still in this spot where we've just recently asked, the church has been asked, what is your feeling on ERA and support of it or not? And basically they said, not even basically, they exactly said, our position has not changed in 40 years. Yeah, yeah. So another letter. So uh, members were exasperated by this, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, many, many who didn't feel like it was the church's place to get involved. Another one said the whole ERA controversy has, however, left so many unsettling questions in the minds of many faithful saints that I can only hope that the church will be more sensitive in the future. Perhaps the most obvious is the question of why the ERA rested before us as a major national issue for five years without any indication that such forceful political guidance was coming. That is, the church remained silent on this issue from 1970 to 1975, when this many states had already voted on it, and the church enters in as relatively late to try to stop it. Um, and, you know, wh why? Why is their question? So uh, there's just some interesting that, you know, people were not comfortable with the church getting involved in political issues. On this, can I'm going to share a, a, another important letter to the editor which speaks to this, and it's in spring 78, but it's from Carl Keller, who is one of our founding members of Dialogue and one of our biggest voices. And he is so frustrated at this point in time. And he writes, Dialogue was doomed from the outset for it founded on a contradiction, the Mormon intellectual. No way could it bridge that gap. Brave attempts were made with each issue by editors and writers, but it was showed much cowardice, a nice look and pretty superficial material. The funny thing about dialogue now, looking back over its 10 years, is a paradox that while it strove to be in the vanguard of ideas and issues, it almost always rather seemed rather retarded. Not just so that the, the numbers came out a bit late or the quality of problems. Dialogue got them, but what most of the issues raised in dialogue aren't really issues anymore. In some cases, they resolved in the Middle Ages and in cases of the early 20th century. And this is the important part. And Mormons seem not to have noticed. So basically what he's saying is, why are we so late getting to these issues? He's he's criticizing his own journal. Of course, the journal is, is being critical of the church, but 
this internal frustration that exactly what we're referring to, that this issue has been a major issue, issue for five years and it's just now getting to the forefront of being written about. Yeah, that Keller uh, letter, I remember reading that and being pretty blown away by how embittered he was. And you see this in a lot, uh, you know, just as we see in our own time, a lot of people have just become embittered after a certain period yeah. and say, you know, I've tried this this intellectual Mormonism thing and it just doesn't work for me. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and that, that was a pretty powerful one. One other uh, letter that I just chuckled at, I don't know why I always chuckle at this, is uh, from Richard Sherlock. You might remember Richard Sherlock was a famous, becomes a, a, an important Mormon theologian, eventually converts to Catholicism, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. But he had written a letter, his first letter when he was a graduate student, his first letter to dialogue when he was a graduate student at Harvard. And he was uh, criticizing the pink issue for being too tame. <laughs> so it was a very mansplainy letter. Seven years later, he's back writing on feminist issues again. And now he's writing a letter to oppose the Equal Rights Amendment in wow. the pages of Dialogue because it would lead to civil protections for homosexuality. And oh so uh, so interestingly, you see him sort of popping up all, all, all over the place on this issue. He's an interesting character if you're not familiar with him. The first issue that Mary Bradford and Lester Bush put together is what they call the media issue. It's one that didn't make a lot of impact and some people thought was maybe a little too tame on some issues, but actually has uh, some really important things. What it is is they're trying to situate Mormons in the broader media landscape. The church yeah. had had hired a professional PR uh, person to sort of lead it. And uh, they were doing ad campaigns, national ad campaigns that were winning awards like the Homefront ad campaign. You can find all of those on YouTube. And they this issue has an interactive interview with Wendell Ashton, who is the managing director of the public communications for the church that had been organized just in 1972. Uh, that had developed all of these ads. And in this issue, Dialogue asks him uh, the, the following question. What about blacks and the racial issue? Are we still vulnerable on that front? Now, this is in 1977, so a year before the, the revelation comes to Spencer W. Kimball. And here was Ashton's reply. It doesn't come up as much now in our news conferences. It hasn't been a big issue, as big an issue as it was five to eight years ago. Oh, my. The inquiries still come, but news interest is receding. I think the public has accepted us for what our position is, and there doesn't seem to be the probing there was several years ago. So they sort of retreat a little bit to say, oh, this isn't really a pressing issue so much. It's not coming up in the media. It's not, we're not being asked about it. Everybody just kind of accepted it and has moved on. And so you, it, it was a kind of interesting snapshot for where at least some of the church leaders, at least the PR church leaders were thinking that the church was is, we've moved on from this issue. And of course, a year later, things are going to completely get turned upside down again when uh, Kimball gets the revelation in the summer of 1978. And I think this issue is actually quite brilliant for two reasons. I mean, up to this point, dialogue and, and a lot of Mormon scholarship has been about establishing Mormonism within Americana, like establishing ourselves there. This issue has a, is a, is a two-way mirror. And what they do is they say, by putting our image out there like we are, we must also accept the fact that what is being returned back to us is this is how America sees us. Is this how you want to be seen 
among popular culture within America? Or is it time for us to change? How much of our motivation to adjust is not just saying, look, it's my way or the highway. I'm just going to do, we're just going to do this and nobody cares because we're not getting any input back from the larger population of, of our country. And then, then this issue really brings to light, guess what? We're being portrayed. We're being talked about. They are mentioning us. Are you okay with that? Are we okay with that? And so I think it's super, I think it, it is it, it is representing that there is a, a, a sort of a spark that comes from from the dialogue that happens back and forth with from within Mormonism and our popular American culture. Mm -hmm. So when the revelation finally comes, uh, uh, Dialogue gets a lot of phone calls from immediate inquiries because Dialogue had published on this and had sort of w was seen as the one of the leading voices here. Lester Bush uh, has a lot to say about it, of course. And he says a couple of interesting things when they finally do publish a uh, an issue dedicated to this in the summer of 1979. So it comes out about a year later, the, the special issue responding to the revelation. And Bush says... The main question that, that many people still had was whether there would be any church comment on the previous practice and doctrinal legacy, such as blacks descending from Cain through less valiant loyalty to the plan of God in the preexistence, etc. And that's an open question that lasted all the way really up until the 2013 Gospel Topics essay, mm -hmm. that the ambiguities that were left and the scars that were left from this particular uh, teaching were never really addressed. The policy was changed. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie said, forget about it. And, and we were all just supposed to move on. But those uh, teachings lived on for a long time. And so you can see even right from the beginning, there were people asking questions. Are we going to get some clarification on what the past meant here? There were also uh, in that special issue uh, uh, essays that were dedicated, not essays, but articles that were dedicated to black Mormon pioneers, Samuel Chambers and Elijah Abel, some of the first uh, uh, articles that are that are on those particular topics. There are personal essays on this revelation. Uh, there's a, 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 a republication of a, a J. Reuben Clark essay that tries to describe what church doctrine is and how it works and so on. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, a kind of celebration of this and an attempt to kind of historically situate uh, this issue. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Well, this is also one of my favorite issues because the 1973 original version is my favorite cover, the black cover with the white drawing of the temple. And what this is, is, is an exact mirror image referring back to that. Basically what they're saying, it is a, it's a reversal of where we were in 1973. Mm -hmm. So in that vein, I, I kind of looked at this, is it a reversal of where they, where we were in, in 1973? Couple of things, and some of them are critical. I'm curious if any one of these essays, not to my knowledge, is written by a person of color. Do you know of any? Not in that issue. No, we do get some, I think, in the international issue, yeah. but, I, but I don't believe any in, in this particular issue. No, not that Taking, I'm aware of. And it took a long time. And, I, and the, the essays are excellent. But, but also it shows how far we still have to go to carve out a space for these voices to be heard. And that's now happening. We're seeing that in our roundtable that ran just in our journal last issue, uh, on racism that involved that involved at BYU students of color mm. and seeing that 
basically also some other voices that are really coming forward, but it's still quiet and a whisper. The other thing I have in this is that the frustration for me that one of the other massive essays in this is Women Under the Law by Susan Taylor Hansen. And basically she just says, this is the end of what she talks about this, the, the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment. She says, something's wrong, but somebody shook their head into her and said, something is wrong when we need an amendment like that. No human should have to ask for equal rights in this country. We should have learned that for good in the Civil War. And what I realize is that as we go through these, all of these hot button issues, we see, we see certain things that have, that we're still frustrated about advancing. But then again, I have to say about this issue and the reversal of the ban, can we call it an advancement? Or must we say at what point in time, as Bush points out, where are we, where are we going to be held to blame in the first place for having it? So I'm hesitant to call it a full reversal. I'm hesitant to say that that it's one of the few advancements that I see during the, the past 40 years within the church, although I think there have been many, many uh, sort of nudges and steps forward. But I feel like there's also this idea that that we have arrived or 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 that the problem is solved is is just the beginning. It's just the it's the it's the first drop in the bucket of solving the problem. And it's good to see a history since then of essays and articles and letters of support and 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 in different sorts of initiatives that make these voices heard. We are still wrestling with this 40 plus years later, as you know, 40, almost 45 years later now. And uh, the, the issue, uh, you know, still still lives with us. So I think it's something that as celebratory as we want to be and as they as they certainly were, uh, it's not a wound that's fully healed. So let's talk about a couple of miscellaneous issues. I knew that you I know that you had a few things that really stood out to you uh, that that weren't you know, some of the big issues necessarily, but were some beautiful pieces that, that you really liked. Uh, what are what are some either issues of poetry or other essays that you really enjoyed? I think actually there's one that is real. Well, there's 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 something that is just utterly comedic that we can't look overlook. And that's in Autumn 77. And it is it is I love Hugh Nibley's Bird Island. Yeah. And if you've read Bird Island, it's very funny. Basically, he unzips his own his own sort of process of thinking about things. It's a really important, um, I think it's funny. He does this tongue in cheek. It's totally tongue in cheek. He says that they found the Hill Cumorah and that it's on the North shore of Utah Lake. And he goes through his whole process and just basically makes fun of himself, makes fun of, of apologetics, makes fun of the, of some of the symposiums that's going on and, and has this meandering, meandering, uh, conversation about finding the source of the Hill Cumorah and how he, he's, how he can back it up using all of his Egyptology, all of his knowledge of Hebrew, all of his knowledge of Central American architecture. And, and he concludes with this little sentence. Well, he says, with the discovery of Bird Island Zipper, a new and fascinating phase of Oriental studies has opened up at, at the BYU. And now, since there are no questions, I would like to invite you invite you to our next lecture, which will be on the subject of Jaredite egg beaters and their designation in the Adamic language. Thank you. But he has, he has a very important postscript because you can sense that he's probably frustrated by some of the conversation himself. He says a nibbly postscript. The Bird Island fantasy was not meant to be read to anybody. It was recited many years ago at a social gathering. He goes on to say that, um, 
It was widely circulated without the writer's knowledge and appears in this journal over his hysterical protest. Actually, the story has a moral, but how easily we may the casual reader lacking the admonition of the composer's great reverberating voice be carried away by the sheer beauty of the pr proposition to overlook its profound implications. For those who may have missed it, the moral that is that everything goes in a free discussion as long as the discussion is going. Everything goes. Give it time and everything will come out in the wash. The trouble with our Bird Island arguments is not that they are silly, but that they stop too soon. Hugh Nibley, retired. <laughs> and I like that he puts retired. He's like, Hugh Nibley, retired. The other uh, piece of poetry that oh, before, is- Oh, before we get off Hugh Nibley, because there are a few things that I want to point out about that one. I love that essay. I think you actually you were the first person to tell me about it maybe a year or two ago, and I went and read it and just cracked up because it is this great satire on- apologetics, a sort of amateur apologetics, and one that, you know, I think could be written today and still be relevant for a lot of what passes as uh, scholarship in some of these realms. Um, there are... It shows his humility. It shows his humility. Too. Yeah, yeah. There's another one that comes from, I think, the next year after that, uh, called Zeal Without Knowledge. That's another classic uh, Hugh Nibley piece that I highly recommend to people. And there's also an interview called A Conversation with Hugh Nibley. Uh, and uh, oh, there's another one, How Firm a Foundation, What Makes It So, a little bit of a more serious essay there. But in this interview with Hugh Nibley, there's a lot of talk. He was already a legend and was already uh, sort of uh, gaining this uh, church-wide reputation for being uh, uh, you know, this brilliant guy. Dialogue asks him, do you see yourself as a defender of the faith? Nibley, perish forbid. I'm not that at all. I'm just another sucker like you. <laughs> Many, <laughs> then dialogue says, Many people have tried to follow you around and become your disciples. Nibley, it doesn't work. No. <laughs> So he's really self-deprecating in this and uh, uh, quite, quite hilarious. You can see what the attraction was uh, uh, there, too. So, again, if you're a Nibley fan, uh, some of these early dialogue essays that he does in the late 70s are, are ones that you can't miss. OK, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off about the poetry. Go ahead. Others, but I really want to one of the ones I don't want to overlook because it's just so key and has made such a big impression on me personally is in 1978, the essay by Mary Bradford, I, 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 comma, I, E, I, Y, E, Y, E, A, A, Y, E. So anyway, the personal essay on personal essays. And it's such an amazing essay because she I realize as I've gone through this and her history with developing the personal essay, she talks about how it is that this is becoming a, a unique voice to Mormonism. And partly because of our tradition of journal keeping and partly because we have a lot of narrative to tell. And she comes at it also and what she does almost in this, she talks about the busy structure of the modern church does not lend itself to the rumination required for the birth of that fragile form the personal essay. She talks about how per how fragile the personal essay is. And, and what she does is she talks about, uh, she says, nor do I think essays can grow from the soil of Mormon life without considerable husbanding. And, and she approaches this, I think, with the vision of a poet. As she talks about these various essays that are, that she goes through, she sees she says, I see Ed Gehrig saying goodbye to his hometown. I see Dean May irrigating his garden. 
Clifton Jolly watching for his babies for smile, peculiar people setting down their peculiar observations according to their own slightly eccentric habits. And I celebrate their truthfulness, their willingness to risk themselves for small gain. I celebrate them for willingness to be vulnerable, for the personal essay is vulnerable and it cannot stand upon its footnotes. And, and here it is, as we saw in the last issue, the issue on sexuality, how powerful and impactful the personal essay is, even given that it is somewhat surrounded by charts and graphs and lots of scholarship. It becomes a very important challenge, the challenge of, of honesty. She talks, Mary goes ahead and talks about how she was very mentored by in this arena of developing the personal essay by both Jean England and by Francis Menlove in the, even the first essay, the first issue of Dialogue. Um, I think that one of my favorite passages she talks about, she says, she quotes Carl Keller. In the mid 60s, we also saw published Carl Keller's Every Soul Has Its South, a moving account of the Mormon venture into the civil rights movement. You leave God behind, you know, when you enter Kentucky, the driver of the car said as we crossed the Ohio River bridges into Louisville. This is the South, the damned and damning South. I was a Mormon going civil riding, and that made a difference. Local members advised me not to go. It's not approved. You're needed here. It's beneath you. You can't change things. You're not the type. But little they know the reason of the blood. I went because I frankly worried. I worried that my wife and children should find me slipping after talking intense brotherhood, worried that church members I had led and taught should know where the doctrine, but not the action of life is, worried that the students I counsel and read and philosophized with were I taught should, should reach for meaning for, for their lives and find no guts, worried in fact that I should somehow while propagating and preaching the kingdom of God miss it miss it altogether. The rest was nonsense. When time no longer ties me to a certain necessities, I will turn again to lose myself among the trapped and degenerate. How else am I to find what I in this world must find myself? Every soul has its own South, especially a Mormon's. So I think, you know, she says that the Keller suffers more beautifully on paper than almost anyone else. And she, and she mentions, quotes the voices of many, one of the most important and meaningful to me was in this first issue, and it's Carol Hansen's death of, death of a son. And from what I understand in 1966, that this personal essay, it's an eloquent and painful account of a child dying of cancer and the inability of the elders to heal him and an ensuing renewal of faith. It's interesting because from what I understand that this particular essay in Personal Voices was needed a lot of editing and a lot of help to bring it along. And it refers back to what Mary Bradford's talking about, which is this that the the nurturing of the Mormon the, the Mormon personal essay, that it takes that much care and devotion, that it doesn't just grow out of a desert on its own, that it has to be, it has to be given a space and has to be helped along and carried along. But the voices are very sincere. She goes on um, to talk about Ed Peary and and some of these voices that we hear all over and over again and forward. One of my favorites that she refers to, she talks about the nature of the eye, the fact that she she uses eye too much in her own writing and that she was she was criticized by this. She was a journalist, and one of the journalists that that she was working with 
had covered really um, important things and she says one day the father of, one day the father of my good friend a writer on the Salt Lake Tribune called me into his office he had been reading my pieces and he wanted to offer a bit of useful advice from old prose it was never use the first person pronoun my work was studded with eyes why there were three or four of them in one paragraph such an enigma had no place in serious journalism egomania sorry such egomania had no place in serious journalism and but then she goes on to validate the i she goes on to say how how it's okay one of the more uh kind of humorous ones she points out is the voice of clifton jolly and he says that he's he's talking about his trips abroad and his former deceptions as an undergraduate, but most delightfully his opinion as a father in food is important, but. And he claims to be profoundly concerned about the population and rapidly diminishing food supply, but he allows that he has a problem, actually five problems, three boys and two girls. And he's talking about something that's serious at the time, that people are very concerned about food shortage and, and this sort of thing and overpopulation. And he says, not really tongue-in-cheek, but, but with an air of humor. You see, I'm not particularly fond of children. As a matter of fact, I'm almost, cert I'm almost certainly certain to loathe your children, wretched little creatures who they are more likely to wipe their noses on my trousers leg than thrill me with their sweetness. So if you were to suggest that you were planning to limit your family to one or two children, I would probably be enthusiastic. If, on the other hand, you were to suggest that I limit the number of my children, well, that's my problem. He claims his own children as gifts and his wife agrees. You see, the last baby was absolutely perfect. Oh, I know, it's horrifying. The idea even horrifies me a little bit. All those orchards filling up, Los Angeles getting no nicer. But then again, there is Sarah. She'll eat rocks. And anyone who'll eat rocks can't be too much of a threat onto the, on the environment. So I think it's really this Mormon gift to talk about something that is is poignant and powerful, but then also to find this way of access, using humor as the access point, making it so that other people can hear their message based on some of the more uh, sort of comical things that they say. Laurel Al um, Laura Ulrich says in Counseling the Brother, she has three eyes and several me's. And she quotes her, the scent of shaving lotion startled me. It was like finding a no trespassing sign in some familiar patch of woods. I'd walk through that door a hundred times, would teach Sunday school in the same classroom an hour later, yet the spice in the air made me an adventurous. Hey, Sister Ulrich, this is a priesthood meeting. The elder teased from the end of the rows I sat down. His good humor made me feel more comfortable, but less exotic. He knew I'd been invited. So there go, then it goes on and again, she talks about the eye of like a seeing eye being, being that the writers see more clearly than ordinary people and record what is seen in selective detail and shape to record this other support to support the other eyes. I think artists do this as well. They see quickly and record it accurately. She talks, she's very complimentary of Ed Geary's work and uh, Doug Thayer's work. Um, and then she ends with the last kind of I, the, the A-Y-E, which is whoa, I, you know, she says most I saying essays are written testimonies. Gene England bears his testimony when he describes the emotional significance of the temple as he applies consecrated oil to his car or when he launches a new magazine. In fact, most of the essays 
I have mentioned bear their testimonies to life itself, its variety, its humor, its pain, and to the less many lessons it teaches. So I, I think um, as we hear more and more of this art form being developed, it's important for us to very, very much give the credit to, to the tender of the essay. And that is, that is Mary Bradford, at least in our journal it is. I think that's what I've got. I love her essays and I highly recommend everybody to go back and take a look at them. Let's conclude with uh, one of the letters to the editor from summer of 1980. I would like to take this opportunity to thank you and those who work on dialogue for a truly excellent publication. As I have read through the back copies and present editions, I have never failed to be absorbed in dialogue. I have found it informative, controversial, uplifting, annoying, parochial, and as many adjectives as there have been contributors. One thing is always consistent. Dialogue is always, always a jolly good read. I hope it still is. I think we need to print that on a large poster. <laughs> this, this episode has been a delight, Taylor. Thank you. I, the content is so, so rich and there's so much to talk about that I, I would really suggest that our listeners go back to these past issues and, and look at the essays that we've mentioned, look, at the, look through the, the letters to the editors. It's just an enjoyment. They're a ton of fun. Thanks, Taylor. Thank you. puts out a number of great shows, including Dialogue Lectures, Dialogue Book Report, and Dialogue Out Loud. We're proud members of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network all one word. You might be interested in the latest episodes of Beyond the Block seeks to center the narratives of the marginalized and conversations on Mormonism. A Black lifelong member, a queer theologian, Brother Jones and Brother Knox seek to fill in the gaps between Mormon theology and Mormon culture. The people of all kinds of identities may claim a seat at the table of Christ. As you've learned from this series already, Dialogue survives based on the generosity of its audience. A few years ago, we became completely free online, but you can subscribe to the print edition or get other cool stuff like the Dialogue Book Club to support our work, or just donate to make sure that we last for future generations. Find out more about how you can support us and receive great benefits at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. We are Dialogue.